Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Mark Scholes. He's a New York City psychotherapist for individuals and couples. And the topic we're going to talk about today is how to reset your romantic GPS. He has a book called Reset Your Romantic GPS, Why You Steer Toward the Wrong Partners and How to Change Direction for the Better. So Mark, thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for having me, Richard. Yeah, if you would, you know, I always uh, like to ask people about their history, how they got into the field that they're in. And after that, I'd like to ask you about your your current work. So uh, if you would, just tell me a bit about your background. I'm a psychotherapist and a psychoanalyst in New York City, and that means went to psychoanalytic training, which is a, a postgraduate uh, after being licensed, and uh, it's just sort of a deepening kind of psychotherapy, a way of uh, deepening one's listening and understanding how you know our personalities are often shaped from our early experiences in our in our familial uh, milieu. And I've been doing this for 35 years uh, in New York City. I teach and I train uh, other therapists. And the way I got into the profession originally is I had a mother that was leaned towards the depressive. She was more of a depressive. And I was, you know, kind of born with as a precocious listener. And I became good at and attuned at being able to sort of understand her. And ever, you know, so over the years, I became quite good at it. And so it led me to the profession and ultimately to the work I do and the, the book I wrote. All right. What, what was your goal with the book? What does that mean to uh, reset your romantic GPS? Yeah, well, the book is really an introduction um, to something called um, attachment theory. It's, and I'll tell you just a little bit about, about that. And so there's secure attachments growing up and insecure attachments growing up. And based on your attachment style, it really kind of narrates and dictates who you're going to be drawn to as, a, as an adult. And these kind of styles, these kind of emotional languages are imprinted literally by two years, by two years of age. So even before you learn to talk, there is this kind of internal GPS that's going to guide you to what feels like a familiar language of connecting. And basically, a secure attachment style comes out of an early childhood of attunement, um, and where an infant and a child's early you know, needs, uh, uh, physiological needs, emotional needs, uh, needs for comfort and regulation and attunement are generally met in a good enough way. And what happens is that the child internalizes this sense that they're, they're, that the world is responsive to them, that their needs and their discomforts are going to be soothed and cared for. And they internalize this, this, this experience and sense that the world is, is a safe place and that their needs are, um, are, are, are tolerable, 
desirable and are going to ultimately get met. And that's a wonderful thing. It's like, it's sort of like having a life jacket in the ocean of life where you have a sense of buoyancy and you can, um, you can approach obstacles and challenges with a sense of anticipating that you're going to be okay. Okay. Uh, what are the side, attachment styles that you, you mentioned if, before we go forward, if you wouldn't mind, how many are there and what are they? Well, there are four attachment styles. There's, um, there's, there's the secure and insecure attachment styles. In the insecure attachment styles, there's a, an anxious ambivalent style, which is where you uh, are both kind of drawn to, you know, a caretaker for comfort, but that you're also anxious about it. You're not sure what the response is going to be. Then there's an anxious avoidance style which is you're drawn, you're, you're, you're drawn to someone or you're drawn, you're needing comfort, but you are um, angry. You're already angry that um, you're not going to get your needs met and, or that there's going to be a cost to, to getting those needs met. And then there's a oh, disorganized. So, uh, so, yeah. Well, one, one second. So, so some people are, they attach, but I guess it sounds like they're emotionally cynical about it. Or they're, I guess, yes. defeatist, like they attach, but they're like, I guess their predilection is, oh, this is not going to work out, but I have to do it, or I'm just going to do it anyway, but I, I'm, I'm thinking that something negative is going to happen, or it's not going to work. Is that what's Yeah, disturbing? I mean, yeah, I mean, they're not going to attach anyway, they're going to attach because we, we do have, you know, as humans, we have, a, we have a, a need for, you know, one of our motivations is connection and attachment. We really need and yearn for those kinds of things in order to, you know, regulate ourselves. And so with a, in an insecure ambivalent attachment, right, there's a, you're, there's a, a, you're drawn to a person, but you're not sure, you're not totally comfortable. You don't anticipate that your needs are going to get met. And with an, with an insecure attachment, that's more of an avoidant, you actually have a feeling and a need that comes up and you, you might withdraw from people. You might go towards them, maybe for an evening or for a moment, your needs are met, and then you pull away because you really anticipate that it's not safe. And then there's a a third category, which is a disorganized category. We don't really talk about that. That's just where you're, you're sort of really severely neglected. And you're, you, you, you basically are very confused around attachment you know, you can't really tell whose need is going on here, whether it's your need or the other person's need. We don't, I don't really address that, that sort of style, although that, that, that's a real style. Okay. All right. So, so we got the types of attachment and yeah, please keep going. Yeah. So, you know, so for an insecure attached person, the way that develops is that early on, instead of having your needs met on a consistent basis, the infant and the child's needs are inconsistently or not met. Experiences dysregulation, experiences of needing for to, to be comforted, uh, gas, need to be touched. Those kinds of needs are, are met very inconsistently. And so what happens here, it's very interesting and in many ways very tragic because the child doesn't internalize a sense that their needs are welcomed and that they don't, and that they can anticipate those needs getting met. 
what happens is they form a sense of shame around those needs. And because they're not getting met, there's a kind of sense that those needs are not okay. They're not desired. They're not invited. And so those needs get sort of sidelined. And instead, the child becomes preoccupied with the parent. What can I do in order to feel more connected to the parent? So the burden of the attachment is on the child. Instead of the parent being attuned to the child and walking in the child in infant shoes, the child has to figure out how to read and how to accommodate to the parent. And what happens there is a sense of security is not internalized. The sense of security now exists outside the child. And so the child grows up into an adult whose security and who regulates their anxiety through being attached to the other, but it's through reading and being accommodating to the other that assures the connection. And that that's more of an insecure attachment. And there are a lot of repercussions to that. One is that you never really have this sense of internalized security. So your motivation be, becomes to, to regulate yourself, to, to ensure your, um, the, the, the stability of your connection. It's an ongoing process and becomes dominant and doesn't really allow you to, to, to think about or figure out what's best for you because there's sort of a need for more immediate gratification and, and tension reduction. I don't know, does that make sense? So when, it's, um, when, it, when it comes to romance. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Do people have to go back and, you know, with help figure out their attachment style and see maybe how that's influencing or maybe even subverting their ability to be close to somebody as an adult? Yeah, exactly. So the reason that I, I, I wrote this book and you can Google attachment theory and is, is because by becoming aware of what our style is, you can, you can begin the process of being conscious of what's motivating you and what's driving you. And, and that is, that is the start of um, being able to change your, your, your um, attachment style. And because the attachment style is your language for connecting, um, the process of changing it and kind of walking in the opposite direction of what feels familiar can be challenging. It can be frightening. It requires the, the, a willingness to mourn um, what isn't and to sort of appreciate what is. And ultimately, it, it, it's a way of, um, I like to sort of say, um, privileging character over chemistry, being able to actually see who the person is in front of you 
and whether or not they're actually able to meet your needs, as opposed to this feeling of just kind of chemistry that's feeling exciting and stimulating. And um, the fantasy is this person is going to finally make me whole, which, which of course, is, is rarely the case. Mm. What happens if, um, you know, sure, you know, in the book, The Five Love Languages. So I, yeah, an example comes book. to mind. What if, um, what if someone's love language, the primary one is physical touch, but let's say their partner is abused and hit a lot. And so when they want physical touch from that partner, the partner's background makes it so that physical touch was always a negative always thing. A negative. So maybe they don't touch the person and then the person, person feels unloved, but it's not for reasons they think it is. It's because of the other person's childhood. Yeah. I mean, when, when you're dealing with communicating about one's love languages and you're already in a relationship where you're, you're speaking and you're open and you're taking the risk of letting the other person know you and understand you. And so if, 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 and you know, love languages are often different and part of a, a relationship is understanding the person you're with and appreciating if you can't, if your language can't be, you know, um, privileged because of another, because of your partner's trauma, there's room to talk about that. There's room to work on that. And ultimately, if it's a good enough relationship, it can handle that. Uh, It may be that differences are too great. And there are relationships that in the end won't work because one's need for a kind of um, a kind of affection is is too great. But it, you're already dealing with a, a positive relationship when you can talk about what it is you need from the partner or what it is that's not allowing you to give your partner what they need. And with a more insecure attachment, there's often there's there's there are two things. One is a person usually isn't fully in touch with what their needs are because they haven't had the opportunity to sort of um, have an environment where they were allowed to kind of experiment and, and be in their bodies and feel safe enough. So the first thing is you have to know what your needs are, what your language, love language is. And um, and after that, in, in a you have to be also comfortable with a person who can you know, be attuned to those needs and even be there for those needs. Um, And that is sometimes also a new and different experience for somebody with an insecure attachment. So what what is, so what is a romantic GPS? Is it a, a seeking mechanism where you, you seek the types of romance that fit your childhood and your background, you know, minus the landmines you've had, but like, what, what is it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's um, exactly, it's exactly that. It's, it's that we have this sort of internal GPS and what we're drawn to is a kind of um, configuration that we're familiar with, that there's um, hope that if I can just get it right this time, if I can just figure the other person out, if I could just, you know, teach them or help them become a whole person, then, you know, the trauma from my past, and then, you know, the person will love me in the way that I haven't been able to be loved in the past. There's a real draw, that chemistry. It's, it, your heart starts to beat, you know, your eyes kind of die, your pupils dilate. And there is a sense that, you know, you're, you're finally on the right track. 
And, and you know, it's not a new thing. Um, I talk to my patients about, about Odysseus, you know, in, in Homer. And, you know, Odysseus is drawn to the Song of the Sirens. And he, he tells his men to tie him to the mast of the ship so he cannot turn the ship in the direction of the sirens who are singing to the longings of Odysseus. And um, he begs his men to untie him when he starts feeling that kind of seductive pull, and they don't. And he's able to make it past the sirens back home. And symbolically, the the metaphor is that, you know, um, you have to be able to recognize those sirens and not only to recognize them, but what what I like to call make the um, the. Um, the discomfort of a healthy choice, you know, that um, by not turning into the sirens, you're you're doing something that is very uncomfortable because you don't really believe that, you know, you're going to be okay unless you follow that kind of old pattern. And uh, those are the, you know, the health, the, the, the discomfort of healthy choices. And the more of those you can make, um, the closer to a, a more regulated home you'll become. So do you think, would you be able to give an example based on each attachment style, how they might show up in a romantic relationship in a, in a way that, you know, again, causes strife within the relationship, but they don't even realize it's because of their path? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I have, I have clients who, yeah, I mean, they're with an ambivalent attached person. So I have a, a, you know, people who have been dating the same, you know, person for a number of years and who continue to, you know, focus on the things that the person doesn't have, as opposed to all of the things that they do have. And, you know, this person hasn't necessarily developed yet to the place where they can kind of realize that um, another person is not going to meet all their needs. Uh, and they haven't sort of given up that hope. And at this point, they're, you know, in their 40s and um, with somebody who's completely good enough to be with, but who's still holding out hope that there's a person that's going to be better matched. So, I mean, that that's one just simple example. Um, yeah. Um, another. Yeah. Go on. When, when people. So, I, you know, I'm just thinking of. Um, things I've heard recently, like a friend of mine, you know, he said, he, he seems like wishy-washy in his decisions with his wife. And recently he said, all right, I'm deciding X, Y, Z. And she responded with like, oh, that means you don't love me. You've never loved me. That kind of thing. It's all a sham, you know? So I know it's not because of what he did, but it, it just, it gave me the feeling that this person's wife was not talking to him, but literally talking to her parents but yes. talking to him, you know what I mean? That, that's the feeling yes, I got. It was wonder, really strange. That, that's, a, that's a wonderful example. I, I, exactly. I mean, you know, where a person in a relationship makes a decision that within a committed relationship and the person, you know, because you haven't accommodated fully your partner and they see that as somehow um, a threat or, or a sign that you are, you know, on your way out. And the only way to prove your love is, you know, by um, proving it, by not being sort of a separate person. That is definitely, you know, uh, um, coming from the past, not the present. 
And if you can recognize that, you know, if you can, if you can um, notice when you're triggered, if this, if this, in this case, if, if your friend's wife could notice that she's having kind of um, strong feelings, intense feelings around something that is relatively neutral, she could begin to be curious about what that experience is. Because what's going to happen if she doesn't is she's going to react this way to your friend. Your friend's going to get annoyed with her or feel like she's being naggy or crazy. And she's going to be responded to most likely exactly how she probably was responded to as a kid instead of the ability to feel, you know, to, to be able to articulate what she's really feeling and for your friend to really be able to be there for her. She's going to co-create a situation in which she gets responded to in the same way she had. So is there a name for this? Is the person talking to their trauma or is it the trauma talking? Like how how would you describe what I just mentioned? I noticed without it being obviously insulting to the person, but in a useful way, is there a phrase for this or a terminology word? I mean, the, you know, the, the classic term term, in, in psychoanalytic thinking is transference, right? It's a, it's a repetition of an old trauma. And so the, the, the trauma is being transferred or projected onto the partner. And, you know, with relationships, it's usually a co-created dance. Two people, you know, kind of create these kind of moments where, where this is happening because, you know, your friend, you know, he might be able to, if he was able to say to, to his wife, you know, listen, I, I think something's happening here. I, I want to reassure you that I'm, you know, not, you know, um, leaving or that it's not a reflection of how I feel about you. And if he could, it's possible she could hear it if he were able to sort of speak to her in a, uh, in a certain way. So, I mean, that's what it's called. And, you know, most of us are in some form or another of this kind of dance, depending on our consciousness of our GPS. The reason I want to, I, you know, again, my motivation for writing the book is just to introduce this idea for people to begin to think about what's, what's happening inside of them and how it's sort of it needs to become, you need to become a conscious and aware of it in order to begin to notice it. And then, you know, talk about how to make those changes. Oh, it's all right. No, so um, does your book, does your book like uh, first help people to identify when this is happening and then gives them like a heuristic or a method to slowly bring themselves to an understanding and then change their behavior, you know, notice it and then change it over time to improve their love life? Or like, what is the what is the flow yeah, of the book to, that a reader has taken through? Well, it's to improve it's to improve relationships that already exist, but it's also really to help single people who are looking for, you know, for their mates, you know, and find themselves repeatedly drawn to a similar kind of, you know, uh, person to help them, you know, um, see that something's going on inside. And the first the first thing to do is yeah is to learn about it to become aware of it and then there are a lot of ways to facilitate and to kind of help grow that awareness that that have to do with our everyday life you know it's one example is um, our cravings you know um, we crave let's say 
we crave a lot of things, but let's say food. And a lot of times we just crave something. We we go into our fugue state. We go, we order it, we we get it. You know, nothing will stop us. And, you know, I like to coin the, the phrase, you know, um, be brave, ask why you crave. So, for instance, if your thing is pepperoni pizza, nothing wrong with pepperoni. You, you notice if you can just take a moment and bring some consciousness to notice that you're craving something. How strong is this longing for this food? What might you feel like if you don't order it? What are you feeling that might be underneath the craving? Not don't order the food, just begin to bring consciousness to it. And by doing that, you begin to even notice what a longing or a craving is. The other, of course, is five minutes of mindful meditation um, to, to develop a practice of noticing, sitting and breathing and noticing what you're feeling and noticing feelings that are uncomfortable. And instead of getting up and trying to get away from those feelings, creating a space in which you're in a relationship with yourself and allowing yourself to get to know and sit with uncomfortable feelings. How fast, um, like how much training, how much training does it take to catch yourself in the moment and how much time do people have? Like, is it three to five seconds enough for them to change their reaction or or stop their reaction that they would normally give? Yeah, people have a couple of seconds to notice. Maybe it depends what what it is. Yeah, it's a very short window. But the good news is that you have so many opportunities. Just being alive allows you um, so many opportunities to notice. And it could be as simple as, you know, people with an insecure attachment they often kind of um, dread exercise. They dread anything that focuses on the self because the self is not the thing that an insecurely attached person focuses on. It's the other. So if you have to go and, you know, exercise is such a great thing to do for the brain. So if you feel the dread of like, well, I just, I just rather not do it. You notice that dread and you begin to have a relationship with that dread. It's just that you begin to notice that's just a feeling, you know, bring the dread with you to the treadmill, allow those. Yeah, feelings what if you call just... it the, the dreadmill? Yeah. Very good. <laughs> that, there, the that's treadmill. a, if I would have thought about that, that's the, the dreadmill. Exactly. And if you walk in the direction of these uncomfortable feelings, you discover that um, not only are you going to be okay, but there's something on the other side. And the thing on the other side is a sense of well-being. And so as a person begins to realize they can walk in the opposite direction of what they're familiar with, and that they're not going to fall in this existential, you know, black hole, but that there's actually going to be something there that they receive, they can begin to take better care of themselves. And when you take care of yourself, you're going to be drawn to somebody who is there for you. Because if you like yourself, you're not going to put up with somebody who treats you poorly. And that's really where the attachment style changes. So what, what do you hear from people that are starting to address this or that are successfully addressing it? What do they tell you? Like, oh, hey, this and that happened and I reacted this way instead of that way. Or like, you know, again, anecdotally, what are you hearing from people when they're attempting to apply it 
and they're successful at it, let's say. Yeah. So, you know, if it, it, with some people, it's about when somebody is not, you know, resp- especially in the dating world, um, it will often look like if somebody hasn't been responded to in a day or two and the person who I'm working with or I'm talking to begins to get more obsessed with that person who has been non-responsive as opposed to uh, a feeling of entitlement that why would I want to be with somebody who is not really available? When they're able to make the choice of uh, instead of pursuing and trying to figure out what's going on in the other person, when they're able to just kind of move on with some help, very quickly feel better about themselves. And the opposite is also true. What you'll hear is that when people are available, they uh, people with an insecure attachment will often feel, you know, there's, I just don't feel that chemistry. You know, they're responding to me. Uh, when I when I reach out to them, they they get back to me. They show up to the restaurant on time. In fact, they've even made the plan. But you know what? I just don't feel that sense of chemistry. Well, I begin to try to help them sit in that space that they may not really be familiar or know how to speak that language or know how to appreciate that kind of person. But if they give it a chance and they spend some time there, they might find that other things about the person become attractive to them. So it's this kind of, you know, uh, work in, in both directions, leaving when the time is right and staying in something that feels different and sort of unfamiliar. Hmm. Okay. Um, you know? so do, you, do you think that people um, mistake chemistry for romance or chemistry for love? And if they're not feeling that, like a a high degree of chemistry that something is wrong with the relationship is that what you're saying yeah yeah i mean chemistry is a tricky thing right it's everyone needs a little bit of chemistry but anyone will tell you in a successful long-term marriage or partnership that you know chemistry comes and goes and you know bond that deepens in getting through periods where chemistry is not in the foreground are the things that deepen uh, um and 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 often um, connect people in a way that is is much sturdier. And so, but in, yes, chemistry is a, a too much chemistry, I think, is a sign that something, you got to think about what's going on. I, I do, I do believe that. Is there a, a chemistry to true re- relationship transition period? And is that where a lot of people get stuck? And, you know, does it, I guess every relationship is different, but is that period, is that a thing? And has that period been studied at transition time? Oh, you mean that, you mean the period where, you know, the, the sort of the high, the falling in love is, is decreasing and the real uh, relationship is emerging. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That is, that's the, that's the secret key, you know, that, that separates the faint of heart. And, you know, that separates however you want the oil from the water, however you want to put it. In order to have a successful relationship, you have to be able to that period of falling. You have to get to the other side and see, uh, you know, who, who am I with? Who is this person? You know, minus the chemistry. And, you know, and I, I usually tell my clients or friends 
I mean, I don't know where I came up with this, but over time, I usually say, you know, you need about six months to really kind of see, you know, the legs of the relationship. Because uh, that's usually uh, when some of the chemistry winds down and you see what you got. And you have to be able to, you know, a person also has to be able to understand that a relationship is, it's never a panacea for making one whole, making making a person whole. You know, that is not what a relationship, that's not the job of a relationship. Yeah. The job of a relationship is to be able to express who you are and have the other person hear it and possibly, you know, uh, meet those needs or possibly not, but certainly uh, be there for you and hear you and, you know, be a partner. Yeah, I remember, um, you know, my kids are now teenagers, but I remember when they were very young, firstborn, you know, it's, it's, you got to watch out that your relationship with your spouse doesn't turn into like a business relationship. All right, you change the diaper, I'll clean up the dishes, or, you know, yeah. all right, what's, you know, it's, it, it seems like they can turn into a coworker if you don't watch out and deliberately spend time with them alone, solo as, you know, when you can, for instance. Yeah. I mean, look, that is, it, it is part of a relationship and it is, it is one of the hardest stages of a relationship raising, raising children and young children, because you, you really do need to be partners in that relationship in, in, and you have a job to do. And it takes consciousness and mindfulness to, you know, um, make space for a relationship and it evolves into a, a kinds of attachments and and connections that you know you don't know until you've done it. Like you know you don't know where it's going until you've done it, and um, it's a tricky time. Those uh, those first I don't know you know raising I guess for the rest of your you know having kids uh, those first six or seven years are certainly challenging, and. You know, you know, you know, you got a partner when you can get through that. Yeah, exactly. When th- when things are tough and uh, you know, there's, yeah. there's there's not that much time for chemistry. Those are the really the the tough times in relationships yeah. to test everybody. Yes. yes. And I guess I, I thought back to uh, what's called the honeymoon phase. I've heard that uh, yeah. phrase with the, for the beginning of a relationship. So I guess the again the transition from the honeymoon phase to the this is reality long term relationship phase is is also another difficult navigation point in a relationship. Yeah, and that's really where all the where all the honey is by the way. After the honey, you know, that that honeymoon phase. The the real benefits of of a relationship um exist when that's worn off. And you know, the thing compassion I have, I mean about it that I have towards people with more of an insecure style is that you know it has nothing to do with who a person is. It's really a kind of it's kind of a, a GPS that was planted in one at an early age, and and it does have an influence. And it, if you follow that GPS, it usually leaves you feeling fairly bad about yourself because you know you you don't you're not able to because the need for security is so much in the foreground. You don't have the ability to kind of think deeply and make kind of choices that are best for the self. And so uh, people often suffer quite a lot until they become aware of, of, of their style and they begin to work on it and change it. <clears throat> and one of, the, one of the few good things that's come out of COVID is because it's really put mental health into the foreground because anxiety 
and mental health has become such a important subject that you know people are certainly learning about themselves a lot more than they used to and therapy is is something that people don't look you know down upon any as much anymore uh, or as a weakness and there's certainly with social media as as much terrible things there are with it there are also a lot of positive you know podcasts and even even some tiktoks around mental health that that are you know that are positive okay well very good um so let's restate so your book is uh let's restate the whole title of your book and where people can find it and uh resources and how to learn more from you if they want to you know go further uh beyond the book so uh, you know uh, reset your romantic gps um why you steer towards the wrong partners and how to change for the better um, is available on Amazon. And uh, I have a website, Mark Scholes, LSC, forget that, Mark Scholes, LCSW.com. Um, if you want to um, contact me or, um, and I have an Instagram account, um, Reset Your Romantic GPS on, uh, on Instagram. So if you want to learn okay. more, please don't hesitate. Well, very good, Mark. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and, and sharing your wisdom. And uh, you know, I can I feel like I've learned a lot from from speaking with you, and I think listeners will too. So, again, thank you for what you do, and uh, I encourage listeners to you know to pick up this book because I think it'll be incredibly useful for them in their in their relationships. And uh, I plan to do the same. So, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Richard, and I appreciate your having me on your show. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.